Well, good morning. As Scott mentioned, we had a great 8.30 service. Um, it was interesting. Uh, didn't go the way we thought, uh, but we had a great turnout. We, uh, our 8.30 service is starting to, um, you know, little by little, it's, it's pretty full now. You know, it used to be like just a few diehard early risers, but uh, it's turning into, uh, you know, in some ways more and more similar to the second service. So God's doing a good work, and in spite of uh, the attack on Jackson's nose, um, you know, we still, uh, we still had worship, and things went well. But uh, good to see all of you here on this rainy Sunday. If you're joining us online, welcome to those of you that are joining us online as well. Uh, a little different today, we'll be in the, uh, the book of Acts, so we'll come back to John next week. But uh, a couple of quick things. Uh, thank you to everyone that yesterday... Uh, served in, in uh, cleaning the children's uh, classrooms out in the modulars, and we had a good group out there to kind of get things uh, pre-spring cleaning. So thank you for those that came out. It was a much nicer day yesterday than today. You can see the nice blue skies, and we were able to get all the chairs out there. And so uh, great, uh, great uh, help to uh, the children's ministry. And we've got some other things, uh, some exciting announcements next Sunday regarding uh, that ministry and some things that we're going to be doing with the modular trailers out there. And so we'll be talking about that just a, just a little bit next week. But uh, thank you for each and every person who gave their time yesterday to, to get things ready. And uh, the kids, I don't know if the kids will notice, but, uh, but uh, you parents will notice when they come in there, these things are done. So uh, it was a good time, and really thankful for everybody's help. And then uh, this coming Wednesday will be our last prayer Wednesday um, of the month of January. So we've started bathing the entire month in prayer and, and been fasting each Wednesday. And some of you have been fasting from social media and, and different things, and uh, that's been a blessing as well. So we're um, just every Wednesday, uh, it's been a great time of the Lord just... Uh, ministering in our midst and, and the prayers and, and uh, fasting throughout the day. And so we'll be doing that again this Wednesday. And if you haven't been able to catch one, come out and join us. Um, it's been an anointed time. Uh, the prayer meetings are, uh, are in many respects, uh, you know, Charles Spurgeon said that uh, they asked him about the, the, the success and so many people coming to Christ and all that took place in the Metropolitan Tabernacle there in London, he said it was, it was the prayer meetings. It was the prayer furnace. He said it was absolutely the power of prayer. He said it had nothing to do with him. It had nothing to do with any of his gifts or abilities. He said it was all prayer. And so, um, you know, the more we can bathe, uh, it, even though this prayer group's smaller, I'm telling you, it, it does something to what we're doing in every aspect of the ministry. So come out and join us. And if you can't, you can join us remotely. If you're traveling for business or something like that, just stop and pray. 6.30 this coming Wednesday. And uh, with that, I think, um, oh, one other thing. So next Sunday we'll be back in the book of John um, and we'll be focused on the cross. And with today with the baptism, uh, that's another reason why I just kind of took a step away from our John study today to kind of have something that was related to uh, the, the topic at hand, if you will, you know, people coming to the Lord and, and following in believers' baptism, but also uh, that we have extra time next Sunday just to, uh, with the baptism, even though it's at the end of the service, our baptism is part of the service. It's at the end of uh, the teaching today, and then we'll, do, we'll all be part of today's service at the very end. Uh, but next Sunday, we'll be looking at the cross, and um, uh, the whole reason we are here it's because of the cross, amen? We were singing about the old rugged cross. Isn't that a great old hymn? 
Uh, you know, there's something about the old hymns, the doctrinal strength of them and the truth of them. And, uh, but uh, we'll be looking at the old rugged cross, the trial and triumph of the cross, and uh, the fact that Jesus paid it all next Sunday. And so I hope you'll be here and invite somebody. Maybe they, uh, maybe they haven't been to church in a long time. They will get the gospel. They get it today too, but they'll get it uh, kind of an extra direct shot from the cross uh, next Sunday. So we'll be uh, covering that a week from today. And uh, in, in a senior moment that I had, I was work, working on multiple studies. I forgot to change the little thing. It's supposed to be Greece, and it should have a Greek flag there. But picture, if you will, a Greek flag on the, uh, and, uh, and uh, the nation of Greece. We did Peru already, but um, uh, if you've been with us any length of time, we've been praying for one country at a time. And so uh, I can tell you it is Greece today we'll be praying for. And uh, many years ago, God sent the apostles to Greece, didn't he? And uh, we need uh, believers to go back. And, you know, there's Calvary chapels. We have some work all over Europe now. And Greece is one of the countries that God is doing a work. But uh, many, many people, uh, my friend David in Italy, uh, you know, uh, Paul went there as well. And there's just all that area around the Mediterranean. It needs a revival just like we do. Amen. Uh, all that area needs to come back to the Lord. And so we've been praying for our own country. But as we are, one country a week. So today we'll be praying for the country of Greece. Ignore that it says Peru. You can pray for Peru too because we still love them as well. But uh, we'll be praying for Greece. And if you're able to, and it still is earlier and easier on the 830 service to get on your knees. But if you're able to, uh, by all means, join us as we just get on our knees for about 45 seconds. It's just humbling ourselves before the Lord, quietly seeking his help. I woke up this morning to another mass shooting in Los Angeles. Ten people killed. And uh, I don't know if you saw that in the news, but that was overnight. Um, of course, West Coast time, three hours time difference. And so it just reminds us that um, unless we turn back to the Lord, we will continue to have crisis after crisis and so many issues of people's just their hearts are hard. But let's pray that God would soften hearts and open eyes, including our own. Let's pray. Father, your word says to be still and know that you are God. And Lord, as we just take the time to be still and we, uh, we fall on our faces before you, we acknowledge that you are holy and we are wretched. You are mighty and we are weak. Lord, you know all things that we know very little except for what you've revealed. And Lord, we just ask as we come before you, Lord, that uh, that work of revival that we know is, can only be poured out from heaven. Lord, we ask that you would restore and revive even every single person that is here this morning, those that know you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, if they used to love you more, if they used to have more passion for you, Jesus, they have more desire for your word, if they were more willing to share their faith to a lost and dying world, we pray that you would stir a renewal, a revival. Lord, if we've left our first love, Lord, that we would return to it even this morning, not put it off for another week or month, but Lord, you would refresh and revive your church 
the bride of Christ, Lord, that you would do a new work in each and every one of us. We thank you for your grace. We don't deserve it, but we thank you for the mercy seat. We thank you for your grace, which is so great. We pray, Lord, that you do a revival at Calvary Chapel Richmond and all of the Calvary chapels around the world and uh, in our own city, all the churches here. We pray that you would turn the hearts of those, Lord, that are bent on violence or immorality or idolatry, those that are still in darkness. You'd break the chains, Lord, our family members, our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends that don't know you, Lord. We pray that th this would be the month, this would be the year that they would come to know you as Lord and Savior. You'd turn our leaders back to you. There'd be a, a work of revival and repentance. Uh, Lord, an awakening of people coming to know you, Jesus, as their Lord and Savior. We pray you do the same as in Greece, Lord. Many years ago, Paul was there in Athens and Corinth, and we pray that uh, in the island or the uh, peninsula there of Greece and the many islands, you would save many souls. And Lord, do a, an end-time harvest, Lord, in Greece and even around the world. Uh, we pray for our brothers and sisters in persecuted lands, Lord, that you would minister to them today, comfort them, heal them, rescue and deliver them, reunite them with family, Lord, increase their faith and even give them peace and joy in the most difficult of circumstances. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, and as you find your seats, turn with me to Acts chapter 8. As I mentioned, we'll be back in the book of John next week. We don't have much left in the book of John, just the finish the 19th chapter, then chapter 20 and 21, and then I'll announce where we're headed next. But today we'll take a little detour. Uh, I think it's a really, uh, it's an awesome detour in Acts chapter 8. I think you'll really enjoy what the Lord does here, and you've probably heard this story, most of you, but if you haven't, I uh, hope the Lord uses it and blesses this time. So pick it up with me in verse 26, Acts chapter 8, starting verse 26. I'm not going to read the entire portion. I'll read half of it to start, and I'll read the other half as we go through. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road, which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning, and sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? He asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shear is silent, and he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Let's pray. Father, we, as we open your word, Lord, your word which is powerful, Lord, your word which can change lives, Lord, your word, uh, Lord, which can settle us and comfort us and correct us and chasten us and, uh, Lord, give us courage and, Lord, we pray that your word would give to each here, those that are here seated, those that are watching online, you would speak to each heart what they need, Lord. 
I, I pray that, uh, that this word, even though I've studied it and, and prepared over it, Lord, that you would continue to change me by the reading of this word. And Lord, that you would transform us. And Lord, that we would leave here not hearers of your word, but doers, applying what you have given. And Lord, we rejoice for what you did 2,000 years ago. We pray you'd do all the more in these latter days in which we live. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Luke, the physician, he recorded this amazing encounter with Philip and an Ethiopian authority. A story that begins with a pilgrimage and ends with a baptism. A journey that began with a man coming up from Ethiopia in Northeast Africa to draw near to God. And it concludes with him going down into the water with the Spirit of God now living in his heart and in his soul. If you're taking notes, you see the title this morning, The Word, The Witness, The Water. Now, we of course know Philip's name, but we don't know the name of the man from Ethiopia. We do know that he was a man of great authority. He was a man who was responsible for the entire treasury of the queen of Ethiopia. As a eunuch, it's understood that he could never father children. The definition, though far rarer, can also mean a voluntary abstaining from marriage. That was not usually the case. Usually eunuchs, uh, there was a biological process to that. But uh, you could also, on some rare occasions, have eunuchs that just voluntarily abstain from marriage. Now, I would say his office as treasurer was not the norm for eunuchs. So this was a, a, a rather unique role for someone to have. And scholars and historians are in general agreement that Candace, uh, th this name Candace, was not a proper name, but it was a title of a dynasty of queens. So a, a, a dynasty of queens similar like Pharaoh or Caesar. It was more of a title. Uh, most of these queens served alongside the king of Ethiopia. So you had the king and queen. Uh, some did end up ruling independently uh, if the king had died, for example. Like Queen Elizabeth in England, her father was the king of England. He died, and then she went on to rule the longest rule of a queen that we know of in world history, 70, what, well, I think 71 plus years. Uh, she was, um, had the monarchy under her. But that was because her father, the king, died, and now we know Prince Charles became king. So the same was true in the Ethiopian kingdom. Sometimes it would be kings, sometimes it would be queens. It depends on who, um, who was alive at that time. But the kingdom of Ethiopia uh, also was known as the kingdom of Cush, and it was a large African kingdom just to the south of Egypt. Uh, ancient writings and maps, and I'll put this up on the screen, uh, indicate that it may have covered a very large portion of Central Africa, possibly all the way over to the Atlantic Ocean on the western side. Different maps, um, there's a lot of different ancient maps that kind of show how large it was, but it, they, they don't all agree. For centuries, it was a land uh, of much gold and affluency, a lot of gold mining. Uh, there was trade routes by land and sea to Asia, uh, to North Africa, of course, up all the way up into the Middle East and even beyond. So to merit, uh, to, uh, and by the way, you can see kind of the route he would have taken from, uh, from Ethiopia all the way up, uh, all the way up there to Jerusalem. But to manage the wealth of this kingdom and 
to be the ruler over the treasury was a massive responsibility. But this Ethiopian officer, who was part of an authority within a major kingdom, he had a deep interest in another kingdom, didn't he? In a different kingdom. And in a far greater ruler. And he had made the long journey and pilgrimage from the pyramids. And if you go to Moreau today, which is in modern day Sudan, uh, Ethiopia is just to the right of Sudan. But at that time, Ethiopia and Sudan were all part of one kingdom there. But if you go to ancient, well, the, the, the ruins in Moreau are still there. You can, there's pyramids there just as you have pyramids in Egypt. There's pyramids there in Moreau. And he had made the long journey from that capital city of Moreau in the ancient uh, kingdom of Ethiopia to the city of Zion, the magnificent, to the magnificent temple that was built there for the worship of God, the God of the Israelites. So he travels up to Israel to worship the God of the Hebrews, the God that, as he understood it, had created all things, the God that was greater than the gods of all the other nations. And it's very possible, we don't know, I would even say probable, but, but we don't know this to be a fact, but most people uh, that study, and a lot of the scholars do agree, it's very possible that a thousand years before the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip have this meeting, a thousand years earlier, King Solomon was on the throne in Jerusalem. And the Queen of Sheba, you might recall, she comes up from Ethiopia and brings an entourage of camels and gold and spices and all these things. And she finds out that with Solomon was even wiser than anything she had heard. But it's very possible that she brought back to the Ethiopian kingdom at least the writings of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's very possible. Now, the entire Old Testament was not written at that point because you know, Solomon was still on the throne. A lot of the Psalms were not written. All kinds of things were not written yet. But it's very possible that she took the law and the Torah uh, that was given to Moses back to Ethiopia. And of course, we know she would have taken back the eyewitness account of what Solomon was building, the, the magnificent temple that Solomon, he built the first temple, as you recall. She would have been able to see all these things and bring back word to uh, those people in Ethiopia. So some of these things might have been passed down, at least the story, similar to Daniel being all the way over in Babylon at another time. But this Ethiopian just as we know would take place with uh, people that were from Rome, people that were from Greece, that had decided that they were done with the pagan gods and they would become what's called a proselyte. They would decide to uh, follow the God of the Hebrews and they would become if circumcised, whatever it needed to be for them to be followers of the Hebrew faith and they would convert to Judaism. And it's possible that this Ethiopian man was making this long journey to Jerusalem to keep one of the feasts. And, and it's more than likely that at least once he would want to get up there for one of the feasts. And by the way, uh, since today we have highways and things, if you have extra money and travel opportunities and you have the opportunity to, uh, to, to fly over 
to the Sudan, you can make the drive. It's only 30-hour drive now. Uh, it took way longer with a chariot, way longer, uh, but it's a 30-hour drive. There's some toll roads. There's some construction. You've got to go all the way up through Sudan, through Egypt, across the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, you can't go through the Gaza Strip because, uh, well, you can't. You're going to have to go around the Gaza Strip, and then you get all the way to Jerusalem, but you can make the drive 30 hours by car today and uh, with a chariot and entourage and camels, all, a way longer trip. It was a long, long journey back in the first century. Uh, but what about Philip? Um, Philip is, this Philip is not Philip the Apostle. Uh, of the 12 apostles, one of the apostles' name was Philip, and you guys may know that, but this is a different Philip. So both Philips are mighty men of God, Philip the Apostle and this Philip as well. But the Philips uh, of Acts chapter 8, which we just read here, is later referred to in the book of Acts as Philip the Evangelist. So he will later be called Philip the Evangelist. Now, unlike the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, Philip was not a pilgrim to Jerusalem or a convert to the worship of the God of the Hebrews. Uh, Philip was Jewish. He was born in a Jewish household, though he did have a Greek name. The name Philip is a Greek name. We're not quite sure why he had a Greek name, but we do know uh, he was Jewish. And no doubt he grew up worshiping uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's very likely he had been to the temple many times. Of course, he was living in Jerusalem uh, a little bit before this. But Philip, although he was not a convert to Judaism or the, or the worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he was a convert. He had been converted from works to faith in Christ. Amen? Uh, Philip had already been converted, converted from um, you know, a life of works to faith in Christ. Philip was one of the seven original deacons, and if you read uh, Acts chapter 6, he's one of the seven deacons that were the first deacons ever named in the church. And he was one of these deacons that was to administrate, uh, administrate the distribution to widows, to serve the tables, and relieve the apostles of various tasks that had been taking them away from prayer and studying the word for the purpose of teaching and preaching. Now we'll come back to Philip in a few minutes and the, the ways, the powerful ways that God uses him starting there in Jerusalem as a deacon. But back to the Ethiopian eunuch before picking up with the text as we look briefly at the role of the word this morning in transforming this man and placing him into the kingdom of God. He had made the long journey from Ethiopia all the way up to Jerusalem to worship God. And like Saul, who later became, as you guys know, Paul, he started out as Saul. This man believed in God. Back when Saul was uh, unconverted, Saul believed in God. But like Saul, this man believed in God, but he did not yet belong to God. You'll meet a lot of people in America that believe in God, but don't yet belong to God. They can tell, I, they, I can even spell it. It's G O D. They can spell it, they can show it on, you know, on the dollar bill, on a quarter, on a dime. They can tell you how many times, well, they can tell you how many times, but they went to church like three times last year. And uh, they, they know who, they have some notion of God, but they don't yet belong to God. There's no relationship with God. 
But this man, just like Saul before he became Paul, his works were to find favor with God. A lot of people will do that. They'll, they'll go, uh, you know, there's as a country song, uh, I, I still like some country music. One of them's like, uh, I'll put a little extra in the offering plate. I don't know if you know, but that doesn't really do anything for the Lord. <laughs> you put an extra 10 in doesn't do anything for you. Well, I'll put in a 20 then. That still doesn't help. No, none of that, you can't earn God's favor. We don't even pass a plate. As a matter of fact, I had a guy last week who said, do you all even take an offering? I said, yeah, we have a box over there. We have a box out there and somehow God provides. But, um, and we have online. But, uh, but aside from that, it was already the word, uh, as we kind of consider the word's impact in this, in this uh, encounter and in this, in this transformation, it was already the word that had brought the Ethiopian ruler to Jerusalem and to the temple You see, the required feasts, they were specified in the law. And some of them you had to go to Jerusalem uh, to keep the feasts. And whatever he knew about God, he had known through the law, through the Torah. And by the time this scene scene takes place, again, you're talking a thousand years later than King Solomon, by the time this is taking place, Philip and the Ethiopian unit meet, the entire Old Testament is now written. You've even had the 400 years of, you know, supposed silent years in between Malachi and the coming of Christ. So the Tanakh, the Torah is the first five books, although the Torah can also refer to the entire Old Testament. But specifically, the Torah is the first five books. But the Tanakh is Genesis through Malachi. And so by the time he is here and he's visiting Jerusalem, the entire Old Testament has been written which includes the book of Isaiah, which we know is what he's reading from. So we know that the word, uh, the law had brought him to Jerusalem and, and everything that was uh, written in the Old Testament, all of the law, all of the prophets, was really to bring us to Christ. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we may, might be justified by faith. The law says... The fact that you lie proves that you are a sinner. The fact that you steal, well, I didn't steal much. I just kind of, it was just, it was just a little thing. No, that proves that you are a violator of the law. The Bible says if we've, if we've broken one law, we're guilty of breaking them all. If we've ever taken God's name in vain, any of these things. But the law shows us that how imperfect we are and the fact that, that we are imperfect, we need a perfect Savior. And so the law actually condemns us, but Christ says, I will instead take your punishment for you. We'll look at that next week as on the cross. He comes and takes the substitutionary death. But the law brings us to Christ because it shows us we can't keep the law. We're not perfect. No matter what we do, we are very imperfect and and sin is something that only Christ can deal with. But when he, so the law would bring him to Jerusalem, the knowledge of God, the understanding that there must be a God that created all these things, All these things that he might have heard are already read in the Old Testament scriptures. Bring him to Jerusalem. But even when he gets to Jerusalem to worship there at the temple, he can only go so far. 
being a Gentile, most of us in this room are Gentiles. We do have some Jewish uh, brothers and sisters that attend here at Calvary Chapel, and, and we're glad that God has put lots of different people into the melting pot here. But he was Gentile, and he could only worship from the outer court. And so I put a diagram up here of the temple, and uh, the little inset picture I took at the temple, of the, uh, at the Museum of the Scrolls in Jerusalem, where there's a scale model of the temple and the city of Jerusalem at the time of Christ. Uh, it's actually made with tiny little limestone. They, they cut them in these tiny little pieces and pieced them all together. So it looks just like a miniature of what the city looked like at that time. But the uh, more the blueprint here, uh, when the Ethiopian eunuch arrives in Jerusalem and he sees that magnificent temple, which uh, depending on the time of day would just glisten like a gold gem there on, on the hill, right there on the Temple Mount. And he could only enter into the outer court, which was called the Court of the Gentiles. This is as far as he could go, right here. If you were a Jewish woman, you could go into the Court of Women. If you were a Jewish man, you could go into the Court of Men. And if you were of the priesthood, you could go a little bit further. And of course, the high priest once a year, only on the Day of Atonement, could go all the way into the Holy of Holies, only one man once a year uh, could do that. But he was only, he was limited to the outer court. So he was an outsider, literally, when it came to how close he could draw to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And to try and enter, if a Gentile tried to enter, you can see it's written in, you know, this is an older manuscript, but uh, it would be a penalty of death. So if a Gentile tried to enter in, the temple guards could grab you and have you immediately sentenced to death. But God was not drawing the Ethiopian ruler to the temple, but he was drawing him to himself. Amen? He used the temple. God might, someone invited me in 1995, invited me to church, but God was not trying to get me to church. He was trying to get me to the cross. Amen? So someone invited me to church. This church is a little sanctuary. It's a temple. It's a, a building. It, but God is not drawing you and I here to the carpeted, beautiful carpet we have, right? But to, uh, to the beautiful carpet we have. We have plans for that too. But anyway, um, he's not drawing us here to the building. He's drawing us to his presence. And so he wasn't, he, but he would use, if the temple or what was written in the law would bring this man to Jerusalem, God was ultimately drawing him to himself. And it's clear that the Ethiopian's desire to know God only increased when he visited Jerusalem. Whether he, in fact, acquired the scroll that he's reading in the chariot, and he's reading from the book of Isaiah, whether he acquires the scroll in Jerusalem or he already had it in his collection, we don't definitively know. But most scholars, and I tend to agree, I believe he got the scroll in Jerusalem. Now, we don't know this for a fact. He could have had it already. But most scholars do believe that he acquired the scroll in Jerusalem. And it would have been very likely that he would have wanted one of the scrolls written by the priesthood and you know, bound and just to say, you know, when you go to Jerusalem, there are certain things you want to say, I bought this in Jerusalem. And so there is that, if we go to Israel in 2024, some of you are going to want to say, I got this in Jerusalem. And not to say that, again, it's not holier, but there's just something about the human, that we just say, hey, I got this in New York City, and I'm going to keep, it's extra special, you know, that kind of thing. So at any rate, if he did get the scroll there, they were very expensive 
to be bought in Jerusalem. It was, uh, it was a painstaking process to write any of the Old Testament. If there was one mistake, the whole thing had to be started all over again. So it was very expensive, but he has the treasury. So, um, so he probably could have afforded to buy this scroll. But he's reading as, uh, as he's in the chariot and he's moving from uh, Jerusalem down back towards the coastal area and then it would go over the, uh, over the peninsula of Sinai uh, back down to Ethiopia. But as he's reading from Isaiah chapter 53, he doesn't understand what he's reading. Uh, it says here, if you look back in the text, um, so Philip ran to him and heard, first uh, Philip uh, comes to the chariot and the spirit says to overtake the chariot in verse 29. Philip uh, ran to him and he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? Uh, and he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And Philip comes up and sits with him. He's actually invited up. And the scripture is reading, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shear is silent. So he opened not his mouth. So he's reading this uh, powerful chapter of Isaiah 53. But he doesn't understand what he's reading. It's convicting him. It's speaking to him. It's drawing him. And he knows, he knows that the lamb is a man, but he doesn't know who the lamb is. He, knows, he understands the metaphor. He knows that the lamb is a man. The word of God it's not only powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, but the word prompts questions that God intends to answer. Yeah. Amen. Let me say that again. The word prompts questions that God intends to answer. So in other words, if you read, why am I even alive? God intends to answer that question. Well, what is sin? God intends to answer that question. Why do I need a savior? God intends to answer that question. Amen? Amen. The, the word prompts questions, and then God says, now that you say, I don't understand what this means. God says, I want you to understand what this means. I don't know who this is. God is saying, I want you to know who this is. When we went to Israel for the first time back in 2013, myself and a, a group of pastors went over and, a, and Dr. Russ went, you went with us, Dr. Russ. And uh, you might recall, we had this discussion with a young uh, Jewish couple that they were from Brooklyn, New York, and I had never seen anything like this in my life. Uh, I had been to New York City on, on numerous occasions. I had seen, you know, the devout Jewish community in New York, but this was my first time to Israel. And we, Russ and I ran into this um, young Jewish couple. I can't remember. I think we were in the Springs of Gedi, if I recall. But um, we run into this young Jewish couple, and they were Orthodox, and he had little ringlet things like right here and uh, all black on, and she had on all black, his wife. They were a young couple like like 23 and 24. And he could not hardly speak any English, though he's from the United States. He, would, he had been in such a Jewish enclave. He only spoke Hebrew. He had a little bit of broken English. I thought I was talking to someone from another country, and here we were all from the United States. He could hardly speak any English at all. Her English was better. But we started talking to them about Isaiah chapter 53, and their rabbi said, he said, our rabbi doesn't read from that doesn't read from Isaiah 53. Told it that it's just something that um, uh, we just pass over that. That it's, it's really not something for us to understand. And isn't it interesting that of all the things God has the Ethiopian eunuch read, it is Isaiah 53. Of all the chapters, God said, no, this is the one I want you to understand. And so uh, we had that discussion and we did our best to present Christ. Uh, but here he is, he's reading this 
and um, it's convicting him. Now let's get back to Philip for just a moment. We know the Word is doing this work on his heart. Let's look at for just a moment the witness. Uh, the Word of God certainly is its own witness, and let's, let's understand that uh, the Word is a far more powerful witness than any of us anyway, right? So the Word is a far greater witness. If Philip doesn't even show up, the Word is powerful enough and the Holy Spirit doesn't really even need us uh, to do all this. And yet, God by His divine sovereignty has chosen that He's going to use us. He's going to use flesh and blood. He's going to use souls that have been saved to reach other souls. And we will become witnesses for the Lord. The fruit of salvation is intended to produce more fruit and more salvation. Amen? The fruit of your salvation is intended. God did not save me in 1995 for me to get saved and then go find myself cloistered on top of a mountain till Jesus returns. But that I would be saved, but also be used that others would be saved. And the same is true of you. But let me ask you, Philip, when he's invited up into the chariot, and the man says, I, I don't understand what I'm reading. How can I unless someone helps him? And Philip gets in the chariot and he starts to take him through. And it says that he started in, in, uh, in beginning of that scripture and he doesn't just stay there. Do you desire to have those opportunities? Do you desire to sit beside someone and take them through the scriptures? Do you desire to see souls saved? We know... Philip did. Warren Wiersbe said this. He said, if, if reaching lost sinners is so important to God, it ought to be important to us. It ought to be. And it certainly was important to Philip. He, he was willing to say, Lord, if there's a man there, I will go. I will sit with him. I'll get in the chariot with him. I'll explain. I'll take my time. Whatever it is, I'll, I'll change my plans. When we first saw Philip, Remember back, uh, I, I mentioned that he was one of those original seven deacons. And we know he was counted faithful by the apostles and, and ultimately by the Lord to help with the practical and the daily needs within the body of Christ. If he was a deacon today, he might be sending some emails. He might be buying all the trash bags for the church property. He might be taking a trip to Costco. He might be making sure that we get this certain bill paid. He might be saying, who's cutting the grass this week? All these kind of things. Uh, he helped with the practical daily needs. In this case, the distribution of food to the widows there in Jerusalem. But along with Stephen, Stephen, of course, uh, was one of the seven as well. Um, neither he nor Stephen would remain in the deacon functions that they originally were given for all that long. In other words, they were named as deacons, but it was a pretty short-term stay for them in that specific role. Now, we know that if God called them and transitioned them out of deacons to other roles, that others would be raised up. I did deacon responsibilities before I then held elder responsibilities. And, and not to say that some of these things are more important than others. They're not. God just has different roles for different people and different seasons. But God soon anoints Stephen. Remember, Stephen and Philip are part of those original sevens. So I'm just focusing on these two for a, for a moment because they're very connected. Stephen and Philip's ministries are very connected to how he ends up here at all. God soon anoints Stephen. Stephen is the first one that God kind of calls away from just serving, not just serving as deacon, but the fact that he was serving as deacon, God says, now I'm going to call you to something else. 
And Stephen begins to perform miracles. And I'm sure the apostles say there's a great calling on this man's life about Stephen. And he begins to preach. And beginning in Acts chapter 7, which is the chapter just prior to this, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen stands up and preaches one of the most powerful convicting messages the world has ever seen. And instead of a bunch of people returning Christ, uh, coming to Christ, he gets stones thrown at him and he's killed and stoned to death on the spot. And he becomes the first martyr of the post-resurrection church, one, one chapter earlier. Saul, who later becomes Paul, is actually there that day. Saul is consenting to his death. Saul is the one saying, go ahead and kill him. I'll take it up with the chief priest. And he's murdered. He's martyred and murdered. Uh, and Saul consents to his death. At that time, as soon as, Stephen is, as soon as Stephen is martyred in Acts chapter 7, immediately a whole change takes place. Saul is emboldened and he's actually given all kinds of power and authority by Caiaphas and the chief priest. Saul begins imprisoning from that day. Saul begins imprisoning Christians. I imagine if we were just peaceful, everything was going smooth, and all of a sudden a third of you are thrown into prison. It would change our prayer meetings fast, wouldn't it? Not not theoretical. This was happening. People were being killed for the faith. People were being thrown into prison. It says that Paul was wreaking havoc with the church there in Jerusalem. And all that began immediately after Stephen was stoned. Now, because of this, people started to flee. Philip was one of the seven deacons, and Philip heads from Jerusalem to Samaria. And it's a city that needs the gospel. It's a place where Jesus, as you guys know, had once preached with the woman at the well there in the book of John. Uh, Jesus goes there, uh, and, he's, and, and because of the ministry of Christ and, and saving that woman at the well, uh, numerous people came to faith, but, but many more never came to faith, and many people have come, and, and the city has grown. And, but it's a safe place for, uh, for Philip to go. Why? Because for him to go to Samaria was like a little bit of a bubble safe place for him to go do ministry because people like Saul, who later became Paul, the priesthood, they thought Samaritans were so low class. They hated Samaritans so much that they wouldn't step foot in Samaria. So if it all goes down, find someone the government hates. No, I'm just kidding. And go there. You know, uh, I'm just kidding. Um, but, But essentially... Philip goes, to where, Philip goes to where they thought we wouldn't even step foot in there because the Samaritans were so unclean, so they were considered half-breeds, half-Jew, half-Gentile. But he goes to Samaria, and he finds a safe place there. Um, and while he was there, it's interesting, Philip has to flee Jerusalem and go to Samaria, where the Ethiopian eunuch... He comes up from, this is all around the exact same time. Philip goes to Samaria while the Ethiopian eunuch is actually traveling and comes to Jerusalem. It's safe for the Ethiopian eunuch in Jerusalem, but it's not safe for Philip in Jerusalem. All at the exact same time. But this man that had formerly been serving, I'm talking about Philip here, this man who had formerly been serving the widows and administering the various tasks uh, for the apostles and, and um, doing all these different practical things, uh, he goes to Samaria, and just like Stephen, the anointing falls on him to preach, and he stands up and preaches, and revival just explodes in Samaria. It'd be like me running to Ashland 
And I get to Ashland, and I start preaching, and things that never worked here in Chesterfield just start exploding. I, I'm not prophesying about that. I was just saying, it's something like that. I'm just kind of giving a geographical difference. But God anoints him, and all of a sudden, Stephen has this great power come upon him. He's preaching with power. He begins healing people. He's casting out demons. Luke records that multitudes in Samaria with one accord heed and repent, just kind of like uh, Jonah going to Nineveh, just like the whole city uh, just turns in Acts chapter 8, verse 8, and says, and there was great joy in the city. Wouldn't that be awesome if we saw that happen in our day and lifetime right here in Richmond? And all of a sudden, the mayor got saved, and school board members, and principals, and kids, and gang members turn in their affiliation, and all of a sudden, people start coming to Christ? That happened when he went to Samaria. Now remember, Stephen had already been called home. He, he got to preach possibly just one time, and on, God says, come home. You've done everything. There, there's not a single thing you could ever add to what I've done, what have done for you. And God brings Stephen home. But Philip had been called home. He had been called out, out of Jerusalem and over to Samaria. But on both men, God poured out his power, and he called them from deacons, Two, they both ended up with the same role, evangelists. Stephen got up and preached the gospel. Philip goes to Samaria and preached the gospel. And they went from being deacons, which they were faithful in that role, to evangelists, and they were faithful in that role. God called them from the tactical and the practical to work for him in the tremendous and the powerful in the preaching of the gospel. And it wasn't because of anything they did. It was just because God said, all right, you were there. You were faithful and little. I'm going to now have you be faithful over here. And God used them in a great way. But understand, listen to uh, this. Every single Christian is called, if you are a believer, if you're born again, every single Christian is called to be a deacon or deaconess in works, things that you do. In other words, everyone is called to some level of deacon and deaconess work, i.e. serving, ministering, praying over one another, assisting, helping with children, helping with worship, helping with one another, bringing meals. Everyone, there's nobody, that, there's no one that God says, hey, you know what? Welcome to heaven. God, I, aren't you glad I never asked you to do anything? There, it says, well done, good and faithful servants. servants. Have you ever met a servant that doesn't serve? You will not be able to, I'm here. Servants. Good and faithful servants. So, Everyone is called to serve. Everyone is called to help and assist. But some are then called to the formal role of deacon, which is, it's the same plus. It's the same plus more responsibility. And then others will be called to evangelists, pastors, teachers, things like that. Uh, some it'll only be for a season. Stephen and Philip didn't stay specifically deacons for that long. By the way, uh, if you've ever been another, if you, you know, I know we have some here that are also pastors and teachers, but uh, I still do a lot of deacon work, even though I do pastoral work. I mean, that never ends. The deacon work never ends. Deacon, deaconess work. But God may still call people to a different role. But the Lord also calls all of us not only to deacon, deaconess work, but he calls all of us, all of us to be witnesses. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we're all called to be witnesses. Not all of us will be evangelists. Not all of us will have the gift of evangelism. Pastor Chuck used to say, the reason why I asked Greg Laurie to preach these Harvest Crusades is Greg has the gift of evangelism. I do not. Pastor Chuck would say that. And, um, but all of us are called to be witnesses. Even if we don't have the gift of evangelism, we're all called to do the work 
of evangelism. Most often in a one-on-one -on -one conversations such as Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch have this one-on-one -on -one conversation and he was sent to this Ethiopian ruler who was thirsty for truth and Philip knew the truth. And the Lord calls Philip to leave this exploding revival in Samaria to leave all that to go to a desert for one little sheep. To leave all that to go to this man who's headed back to Ethiopia. And it reminds us that God loves the one just as much as he loves the many. Amen? Amen. He loves the one as much as the many. Now, it's likely a miracle that Philip is able to get from Samaria to the Ethiopian eunuch. The first clue is he's told by an angel. Has anyone had that happen this week? <laughs> an angel Lord comes to him and says, go to the road from Jerusalem down to Gaza. So uh, the first clue is there's a divine angel sent to give him this message. The second clue is if you look at a map, and I've got one on the screen here again, um, uh, you've got Samaria's way up here, Jerusalem is here, and he's already on the road from Jerusalem. He's already on the road on the chariot here down towards Gaza, but Philip's way up here. Now, either Philip's one of the fastest runners in the history of the world, um, or much what we see at the end of this chapter, which we'll see in a minute, probably happens at the beginning as well. An angel, he starts moving and God just gets him there. God does not need Southwest Airlines. Well, none of us currently need Southwest Airlines, but, uh, but anyway, no, I'm kidding. But he can get you there really quick. Um, but the Spirit says to go and overtake the chariot. Of course, no car is needed, no bus, no train, no plane. Uh, if God calls you to do something, don't worry about how it's going to happen. Just take the first step. Well, how am I going to reach her whole family? You, you're not, you don't have to. Take the first step. Send the first email. Say the first, hey, been praying for you. Whatever. Whatever the first step is, take the first step. Uh, verse 30, look at verse 30 for just a second here. And uh, so Philip ran to him and he heard him and reading from the prophet Isaiah, do you understand what you're reading? Of course, he doesn't understand what he's reading. And Philip hears the word of God. He knows that passage. He knows the word of God's already at work. In verse 31, he invites Philip up into the chariot. He comes up in the chariot. Uh, and when God has prepared a heart, this is good for us to know, Notice, if God has prepared someone's heart, they will not be arguing about the scriptures, but they'll be wanting to know what they mean. Amen. If they're not yet prepared, they're ready to argue with you about the scriptures. But if he's preparing their heart, they're like, no, I want to understand. What does this mean? What does that mean? Why am I having this feeling? All of these things, if he's prepared. Verse 32 and 30, uh, 32 through 35, uh, let me pick it up with verse 34. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at this scripture, preach Jesus to him. What he's reading about the lamb led to the slaughter was not, when we read that, both the passage and what the passage refers to is ancient for us. Jesus died 2,000 years ago, and Isaiah was 700 years or so before that. So in our minds, what we're reading and what we're reading about is both ancient. Not in this scene. He's reading Isaiah 53, but Jesus had just gone to the cross five years earlier. So it'd be like me talking to you about something that happened in 2018. It was alive. I mean, he's reading this, and Philip's like, 
if you had been here five years ago, you would have seen him on the cross. You would have seen him bleeding. You would have seen him uh, scoffed and beaten and tortured. Everything that we'll look at next week. This happened five years earlier. I don't, you probably may or may not know this, but at this moment, while he's sitting in the chariot, Caiaphas, five years later, is still in power as the high priest. He's still the high priest. Herod is still, Herod Antipas is still in power, and Pilate is still in power. All will be in power for one more year post this. But he preaches Christ to him. Not Philip's way, not the way of the Hebrews. He preaches Christ. He doesn't even preach the way of Moses, if you notice. He preaches Christ. And by the way, preaching is not just for pulpits, amen? amen. It's also for chariots and subways and airplanes. And preaching isn't always with a microphone. Very often it's in a one-on-one conversation, maybe over coffee, maybe over a chance, not chance, but an encounter. But preaching is always proclaiming. Amen? That's what defines preaching is always proclaiming, and it's with an absolute confidence. If you want to preach Christ, you better be confident about Christ. Amen? Amen. If you want to preach Christ, you better say, I know in whom I believe and persuaded that he is able. So preaching is always with confidence of truth. And let me ask you this, kind of an example. If someone that you didn't know says, I'm reading Isaiah 53, and I don't know what any of this means, would you be able to sit down with them and go through Isaiah 53 with them? And use it a launching point to take them over to Romans, or over to the Gospels, or over to Ephesians, or over to Galatians. If you're not able to do that, this is the year that you've got to be able to do that if God were to put you in that place, and I believe he's calling all of us. Are we looking and praying for opportunities to preach and present Jesus? G.P. Howard said, we face a humanity that is too precious to neglect. We know a remedy for the ills of this world too wonderful to withhold. We have a Christ who is too glorious to hide. Let me finish the reading the rest of this, and we'll bring this to a close. Now, as they went down the road, verse 36, they came to some water, and the eunuch said to himself, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded both the chariot, he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found in Zetos, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. The Ethiopian ruler, he wisely and immediately responds with belief in the Word of God, the witness of God, and the witness of Philip. And he says, Jesus is the Son of God. And he believes everything else that Philip had proclaimed to him. He believes that all is true. He's not arguing with it. He's not trying to say, what about Cain's wife or anything like that. He just says, I believe it all. He had just been to Jerusalem. And he, only, he was limited to the outer court. Caiaphas, the high priest, interestingly enough, Caiaphas could enter not just the court of the men, but all the way into the court of the priesthood. And yet Caiaphas was nowhere near God. And yet this Ethiopian now is a son of God through Jesus, which brings us to this closing point, just the water, and we'll be baptizing in just a few minutes. The Ethiopian ruler, he doesn't even want to wait a minute to be baptized. You notice that? He's like, hey, here's water. I don't know if it's the Mediterranean Sea. I don't know if it's an oasis area. We just don't know how far along they've gone now. But he says, here's water. He doesn't want to waste a minute. 
And Philip says, you can if you fully believe. It has to be an act of the heart. It's not a work. God sees the heart. And he says, no, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I've just heard about him for the first time, and he believes. And, you know, baptism is not the means of our salvation, but it's that first step of obedience after salvation. It's not the means of our salvation, but it means obedience to Christ. And, and, and his willingness, his desire to, to be baptized right there, it's to testify to all those who are traveling with him. No doubt uh, a bit of an entourage with him to and from Jerusalem, being a ruler and, and the treasury and all the things that come with that. Uh, but he wants everyone to know in his group, he now belongs to Jesus. And he's been brought into an eternal kingdom, not the kingdom of Ethiopia, not the kingdom of Cush, but an eternal kingdom. And he's now identifying with his king, even though he was on the business for his queen. In these last couple of verses, in verse 39 and 40, we know that, um, amazingly, uh, Philip just baptized him, and God says, all right, that season's over, Samaria's done, Ethiopia... He is, same word, harpazo, he's just kind of raptured. It's kind of a little of a foreshadow, if you will, of the rapture itself. He's just kind of taken up, and he's taken to, not up to heaven, because there's still work to be done, but he's taken to Azatos. And interestingly enough, it says he ends up in Caesarea, and this is kind of a fascinating thing. He ends up in Caesarea, which you guys know was Pilate's headquarters, um, and there it is in the Mediterranean. He ends up in Caesarea, later ends up having, Philip has four virgin daughters that also love the Lord, and they prophesy. And amazingly enough, the reason he had to leave Jerusalem in the first place was because Saul, before he was Paul, was wreaking havoc. But full circle at the end of Acts, Paul comes to Caesarea and stays with Philip. Philip. <laughs> and Paul's the reason he had to leave Jerusalem in the first place, and God brings them together at the end. Isn't that cool or what? So when you get to heaven, Paul and Philip can say, Let's tell you the rest of the story. You know, there's a lot you didn't even know that wasn't even recorded. It'll be amazing. Let's close in prayer. But let me say, as we close in prayer, just all this reminds us, the water, the, the, the uh, baptism itself, that we have been cleansed and we have a new life because Jesus is the only one that cleanses with pure water. Amen? Amen. And we're testifying to that. Lord, we just, we just thank you for the, uh, Lord, just the encouragement of your word. And we pray, Lord, as we're going to have these uh, folks baptized, these brothers and sisters that have come to you, we pray that uh, it would be an encouragement to everyone here to see that the Spirit is still saving souls. And later this year, we'll see more people come to Christ. And Lord, as we continue to proclaim by those steps of obedience with the help of the Holy Spirit that there'll be more Ethiopian eunuchs and there'll be more Philips who also at one time was, was needed to be converted and, Lord, we pray that one by one there will be more Saul's becoming Paul. And, Lord, we pray that uh, even today as we uh, have these baptisms that just are testimonies of following you, Lord, it just is the first of many first fruits in this coming year. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, you guys are going to worship for a minute. i got to go change really quick. And in our last ten minutes here, we're going to baptize, I think, three or four people. So if you can just worship, I'll be right back in in just a couple of minutes.